My name is Matt Moran. I'm one of the pastors in this church. I'm the uh, Pastor Matt that's a little, little shorter, a little thinner, <laughs> significantly less energy, um, <laughs> in case you were unclear on that. But it's just an immense privilege for me today to come into the pulpit to be able to share God's word with you. Today we're wa- wrapping up a series that we began at the end of May called Get Wisdom in Fool Town. And we've been contrasting the foolishness of our our Bostonian culture, the foolishness of our own lives, with the wisdom of Proverbs. We've talked about a lot of different kinds of foolishness in the past 18 weeks. Today we come to the last week of this series, the conclusion, and we've already talked about some very specific kinds of foolishness, things like the foolishness of the way that we think about government, the way that we spend our money, the way that we communicate with each other. Today we're going to talk about a folly that resides deep within each one of our hearts, and that's the foolishness of unbelief. I think it's appropriate that we're concluding with this topic because the foolishness of unbelief is what I would call a universal foolishness. In other words, the foolishness of acting as though God does not really exist. That's something that touches each one of us. So we've been in Proverbs the last 17 weeks. Today, we're staying in in wisdom literature we're sliding just over to the left in your Bibles and reading from the book of Psalms. I'm going to reread Psalm 14 that Brent already read. Uh, So join with me in Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Let's pray together. God, it's our desire right now as your church that we would respond rightly to your revelation. So right now as we hear your scripture, I ask that you would come by your spirit and illuminate our hearts and cause us to respond in faith and obedience to your word. Would you form us by the truth of your word into a faithful and obedient people? Let us hear your word accurately and respond rightly. Would you cause these words to help us find our great joy in you? Please hear my prayer. Okay. I use the term universal folly. So let's start with a story. My senior year of college, I lived in an apartment on a hill, okay? And it had a sloping driveway. One night, or one morning, I went out to my car and I realized I had left my lights on overnight, which was something I did every couple weeks back then. (laughs) And uh, so I'm blocking in another vehicle and I knew I had to move my car. So as I'm sitting there in the driveway trying to figure out how to do that, it occurred to me, if I would just shift the car into neutral, 
I could kind of roll it down, roll it down the driveway, park on the street. Whoever was, I was blocking in could get out, and then we'd be able to, then I'd be able to figure out how to jump it from there. That seemed like a good idea. So I shifted the car into neutral, and, uh, and I swear I was stone-cold sober. It was 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> but I wasn't in the car when I shifted it into neutral. <laughs> so it's still hard. It's still hard for me to, to think about what happened next. But in a moment, in a twinkling of the eye, I was chasing my car down the hill, across the street, into my neighbor's yard. And as I'm chasing the car across the street, as it's picking up speed, slowly going downhill, the only thing missing from that scene right there is Bob Saget and a $50,000 check. I mean, the car's just rolling right... It went across the street, across the lawn, towards my neighbor's house. Um, as it happened, my neighbor was a mailman, and uh, he was home that morning, sick with the flu. He was asleep in the basement, and when my red Ford Escort slammed into the side of his house, I think he must have thought the apocalypse was coming. <laughs> I can still remember the scene of him coming out of his house, and he was shaking between, <laughs> with a combination of rage and symptoms, and, uh, and he said, he said, this happened last year. <laughs> okay, so let's, let's, let's be clear. Okay, this was the first year that I had been in that apartment. But what my neighbor was experiencing was kind of a universal folly, and that is the folly of college students. I really, I was, it was my first semester, but amazingly, I was not the first person to leave their car in neutral and to let it roll down the hill into the side of his house. (laughs) For me, like most of us, that period between 18 and 22 was kind of this period of, um, where increased responsibility collided with lack of maturity, and the result was foolishness in a lot of different areas. Uh, I still had a lot of immaturity at that time. What's more foolish than a dead Ford Escort lodged up in someone's garden uh, up against the side of their house? That was the morning that uh, a door opened and my bank account went flying away. (laughs) Because, you know, you really can't, can't call home for that type of thing and say, (laughs) Dad, I ran into someone's house. Everything's fine. I wasn't in the car. (laughs) That was a period of great foolishness for me. We're going to look today at another universal folly, and that's what I'm calling the foolishness of unbelief. A little background on Psalm 14. A little background for you right here. Um, It's attributed to King David. It's also what we would call a community psalm, meaning that there are a couple different voices featured here in the psalm. It's not just an individual, but it's kind of a lament given by the people of God, by the from the perspective of God's covenant people. It's a lament where people are mourning the sin of the wicked and of their own the sin of their own heart. So of their own culture, also their own lives. 
So let's look at this first verse. It says, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. And at first glance, that verse kind of sounds like it's talking to the atheists, someone who believes that God doesn't exist at all. When I looked at this more in depth, I realized that's not actually accurate. There are three different Hebrew words for fool. There are, none of them are referring to intellectual capacity or philosophical perspective. Like we've said before through this series, you're not a fool because of the score of your IQ. Rather, fool refers more to your moral orientation. The fool here is someone who's rejecting wisdom. When the fool says there is no God, he or she is not expressing a philosophical position. It's not atheism, the idea that God does not exist at all. Rather, it's the idea that if God exists, he doesn't actually care about what I'm doing. He's not really interested in my action. He's not going to call me into account. The way that he has revealed himself in Scripture is not actually true. It's godless behavior. It's conducting my life as if God is not who he says that he is. It's also important to look at the text and say, the fool says in his heart. That's an image we can all relate to because I think it goes all the way back to the original sin in the garden. We see there a similar scene of kind of interior dialogue. Did God really say that? Does he really mean that? Is that really true? Was he really serious when he said, don't eat from that tree? That's the type of internal dialogue that we're talking about here. Those are the questions that we ask ourselves when we justify our own sinful behavior. Does God really think that this is important? Will he really call me into account for my actions? When the fool says in his heart, there's no God, it's a thoughtful, deliberate conclusion where we are willfully choosing to forget God. And the result of this internal dialogue is that we self-justify, and we do this all the time. We have an infinite capacity for self-justification and for rationalizing. So we do, like the psalm says, we do corrupt deeds. We do abominable deeds. There's no one who does good. And you're saying no one does good? No one does good? That's got to be an overstatement, right? That has to be a little bit of hyperbole. As I said, this passage I originally thought was being, when I uh, first started working into this, I thought this might be addressed to complete non-believers, those who don't believe in the existence of God at all. So in preparation for this sermon, I did some reading both by and about uh, a guy named Christopher Hitchens. Some of you might be familiar with him. Uh, Christopher Hitchens is a self-proclaimed atheist or anti-theist. His book in 2007 called God is Not Great was a huge bestseller. He's written a number of, um, a number of books and essays from his uh, atheistic perspective. And I began to work through uh, Hitchens and picked up his latest work called Hitch 22 kind of get a, to get a feel for where he was coming from. And I realized real quickly, this is a guy who absolutely despises Christians and people of faith of any kind. It took me only a couple moments for my heart rate to pick up, for me to start forming counter-arguments, to get, for my blood to start to boil. Because there was just such mockery that the guy is spewing forth. He wrote one book specifically attacking Mother Teresa. And I just thought, who does that? Who, who does? He's in his early 60s right now. And uh, his book right now is on the bestseller list. 
But his book tour was cut short uh, because he was diagnosed with a very, very serious form of cancer in the esophagus. And by his own admission, Christopher Hitchens doesn't have a very long time to live. Uh, interestingly, his brother is evangelical. His brother Peter Hitchens is a Christian. So the two of them have both written books. They both weighed in on the, uh, the, this controversy. And you can imagine uh, just the dialogue and controversy that the two of them sparked together uh, on both sides, of course, of the theological spectrum. Now that he's very ill, Christopher Hitchens is in this unusual place of receiving a lot of prayer, even though he doesn't actually believe in the efficacy of prayer. I watched an interview with him recently on CNN, and he said there were three types of prayer that he was receiving. Some people were praying for his physical healing, some people were praying for the redemption of his soul, and some people were praying that he would suffer more than he is already. And I think that's easy for us to get to that place. We may not be quite so, uh, quite so vitriolic as that, but it's easy for us to get to that place where we think that there's this special class of sinners, these people who are really wicked or who are really against God, especially when we see a guy like this who makes it his delight to mock Christians. But I think Psalm 14 would tell us something different. In verse 2, it says, The Lord is searching to see if there are any who do good. And the conclusion is, no, there are none. Psalm, verse 2 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who understand, who seek after God. The answer in verse 3 is no, absolutely not. They have all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. What David is saying is that on our own and left to our own devices, we do not seek after God. The folly that says there is no God is a folly that goes right to our own affections, not part of our mind. We're talking about a position of the heart that does not seek after God, that will willfully oppose itself to God. When we look at verse 3, it becomes evident that we're not talking here about a special class of people who have rejected God. Look at the words. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Uh, the biblical commentator, Matthew, Matthew Henry, wrote about this passage over 300 years ago, and his words are really fresh today. He said, there's something of a practical atheism in all of us and in all sin. We are sometimes ten tempted to think, surely there was never so much profaneness as there is in our days. Okay, and this is 1700. Surely there is never so much profaneness as there is in our days. But we see that the former days were no better. The sinner is one that says in his heart, there is no God. He is an atheist. He cannot be sure there is one, and therefore he is willing to think that there is none. He is a fool. So to believe that God exists and not worship him is folly. And yet at some point, this is described each one of us. At some point, this is our condition. John Calvin said, there is no stupidity more brutish than forgetfulness of God. And isn't that really what sin is about? When we deal dishonestly with money, aren't we really saying that God can't provide for us? That we don't functionally believe that he can do that? When we're paralyzed by fear to do something that we know we're supposed to do, 
Isn't that really saying that God cannot guard our reputation? It's a, it's a lack of belief in the sufficiency of who God says he is. Sin is most foolish because it's a rejection of who God reveals himself to be. The psalm continues in verse 4. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who do not call upon God? It's a rhetorical question. No, they don't have knowledge of ultimate reality. Because those who live in the foolishness of unbelief actually are prone to sink deeper into sin. That's because sin by its nature causes confusion and it darkens our understanding. Verses 5 to 6 kind of look forward to a future judgment. It says, there they are in great terror, meaning the wicked. But it also gives us, in verses 5 and 6, our first glimpse of hope. This has been a very bleak psalm up to here. But it says, for God is with the generation of the righteous. And as I was studying this, I asked myself, if everyone's corrupt, if everyone's forgotten God, how are we speaking of a generation of the righteous? And the answer is hinted at in the last verse when this very bleak psalm starts to turn in verse 7. It says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. What they're saying is, Oh, that salvation for God's covenant people would come. We're wicked, but oh, that salvation would come. David's picturing the rejoicing of God's people when the Savior comes. So this is an Old Covenant psalm looking forward to the salvation of God's people. He's saying something that seems contradictory. He said that the foolishness of forgetting God affects us all, and yet there is this thing called the generation of the righteous. And he's concluding looking forward to the Savior. Remember, this is an Old Covenant psalm. So I think the answer to the gen- who the generation of the righteous is and the Savior that David's looking for, actually comes later, and it comes in Romans 3. In Romans 3, the Apostle Paul goes there, and he's kind of explaining the the universality of sin, the same thing thing that David is mourning. And in Romans 3, Paul pulls from Psalm 14, and he pulls from some Proverbs and a couple spots in wisdom literature to give the old covenant, the old covenant testimony to his audience that we are in desperate that we are in desperate need of a savior that we are in absolute and utter sin let me read from romans 3 starting in verse 10 paul's quoting and he says none is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks for god all have turned aside Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. Then a summary statement. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, so much there. So, that's, there's so much to unpack there. But when Paul references Psalm 14 in Romans 3 to say no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God, what's he saying? He's saying there is no one among us who seeks God on our own or who merits salvation. By the works of the law, no one will be justified in his sight. Our righteousness will prove to be totally inadequate, and foolishness is not recognizing that. The greatest folly is trusting in yourself. Trusting in yourself to merit righteousness before God. Because left to ourselves, you and I would be flipping through the real estate pages, we'd be refreshing Craigslist, looking to buy ourselves a nice plot of land, Three bedrooms, two baths, right in the middle of Fool Town. That's where we would want to be. We'd be building our dream home right there. We're not much better. Not better at all than Christopher Hitchens or all those who use the intelligence, the gifts that they've been given by common grace to reject God. We like to think that we're superior, but we're not. There's no distinction, Paul says. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And our hope, our great hope, is that we as the covenant people of God have experienced what David and his people long for. We've experienced the Savior. And it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ that can cover our sin and our foolishness. God, in Christ, through the power of the Spirit, opens blind eyes and allows us to see what we would never see otherwise. We see the glory of God in the gospel. We become, through the work of Christ, the generation of the righteous that David talks about. It's happened totally apart from us, in spite of our sinfulness. It didn't happen because a small number of people kept themselves pure from the world. It happened through the work of Jesus Christ. The children of Adam, the ones who are so prone to foolishness and self-justification, can be born again through the work of Jesus Christ. We find the reality of redemption in him. So I want to bring this home right now, okay? Some of you are thinking, all right, I don't, I don't deny that God exists, but I'm really not sure about this whole, this whole gospel thing, the whole Christianity thing. You have doubts, okay? You're not totally sure that you want to buy into this. Some of you have had a lot of exposure to the Christian faith. Maybe you've been wounded in that process. And there's part of you that's still skeptical, okay? There are others of you that have grown up in a household of faith, but you're not sure how much of that is transferred over to you. So let me say this to you, okay? I have been there in that situation, okay? I have been, I've been what I would call a serious skeptic, okay? And I really believe that God is faithful to use that time. If, if the questions that you are asking are questions of honest doubt, okay, and you're probing into the, the story that God is telling, 
that is a great process, okay? We desperately, desperately need people who can look deep into the sin of the world and look deep into this question and into their own doubt. That's a useful process, and it's a process that God's going to use. We don't necessarily get to that inward yes quickly, okay? And that's okay. So if you have doubts like that, I say, okay, great, great, that's fine. Ask those questions in community, okay? Probe into the gospel with other people. Bring your questions. Keep humbly seeking after God. Keep questioning him. And if you come to God in humility, seeking after God, you are going to find that the gospel is compelling and rich and true. You are going to find a deep well there, and there will be life to your soul. So that's the stage that you're in. It's, I know it's not easy, but it's, at the same time, it's worth it. There's another kind of doubt, okay? And this is the type of doubt that masquerades as serious philosophical questioning when it's really just a cover-up for, for our own desires, the desire that we have to live according to our wishes. Okay, and I've been there too. Sometimes we just, want to be a cyn- we just want to be cynics and justify our own behavior. What I want to say to you is don't be that type of doubter. Sometimes cynicism is just our cover so that we can live the way that we want to live. If you're in that stage, be honest with yourself, okay, because you're not sorting through things, you're not processing, you're resisting the obedience to Scripture, okay, and you need to repent. Finally, some of you are saying, thanks be to God, I was a fool, but incredibly, the wisdom of God has broken in on my heart, and I've been made righteous. So what do you do? Cling to the gospel and rejoice in it. Let this be your great hope, that you were destined for a life in fool town, but Jesus Christ has sought you out and plucked you out and planted you in a new land and headed for a new destination. Now as his children, we've become the generation of the righteous. So we lead lives with the aim just simply to glorify him. If our great hope is in the gospel, then our great aim is to make much of Christ. So what does that actually look like? There's a lot of flexibility in that answer, okay? And it varies depending on the gifts that God's given you. Let me give you a couple ideas, though. It looks like using your unique gifts to serve God in whatever context he's placed you in. It looks like utter humility before the cross so that the works that we do are not for the purpose of self-justification, but only for bringing glory to Christ. It looks like loving your lost and foolish neighbors. And it looks like generosity that can only be explained by the gospel. We have been saved from utter foolishness. And so we respond to Christ with hearts of great affection. Fools live and revel in unbelief, but the wise put their hope in a Savior. Let's pray. Lord God, who among us could save ourselves? Not one of us. By your own works, by our own works, not one of us could be justified in your sight. But you have come in your grace and have given us redemption through your Son. And we rejoice in that. And we hope in you. And we ask by the power of your Spirit that you would cause us to live lives that can only be explained by the power of your gospel. So hear our prayer and answer it, we pray. Amen.